0: Continuing verse by verse through the book of Acts, Acts 23, and verses, I'm only going to preach on verses 1 through 5, but we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth, Then Paul said to him, "'God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, "'for you sit to judge me according to the law, "'and you command me to be struck contrary to the law?' And those who stood by said, "'Do you revile God's high priest?' Then Paul said, "'I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, "'for it is written, "'you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people.' But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, "'Men and brethren,' I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our delight to worship you and our responses from it and to seek to live it out. We pray that you would uh, anoint me as I preach and uh, that you would uh, quicken the word to each one of our hearts. Guide us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. This past week I was reading the testimony of Karen Myers down in Kansas. Her mother was the co-founder of the Kansas Right to Life. And so Karen, ever since she was six years old, has always been at the abortion clinics, picketing and praying and... Uh, other abortion venues as well, mostly just offering help to people. Her mother was a survivor of the Holocaust during World War II, and when she saw the horrible treatment of people in the prison camps, it really affected her. And here she said over and over again, if we don't speak out against abortion, we're going to be seeing some of the same Nazi-like attitudes uh, toward everyone and toward everything. And So they were very, very involved in the pro-life movement. And many Christians have no idea of how bad things have gotten in America simply because they're not interacting with culture. They're just safe in their homes. But Karen was on the front lines of the battlefield, and she has experienced incredible abuses from various government officials. It started at the Coliseum when she was part of a peaceful Uh, picketing at a Cher concert. Cher is very pro-abortion, and uh, her sign was just offering post-abortion trauma counseling services. It said, Hurting After Abortion, call 1-800-401-6494. That was the number of the counseling center. Well, a deputy came along and shouted at everyone to move back 100 feet, but before anybody could even move, without any warning, uh, someone had uh, grabbed both of her arms and twisted them into a double hammer lock and was shaking her back and forth with her arms where she felt like her arms were just being torn out of their sockets. She was just a slight little thing, and she was uh, begging, you know, for him to stop hurting uh, her, and he slammed her into the ground, put his full weight on her frail body, and ground her face into the dirt, and... Uh, uh, she could feel the pain radiating down her arms. She knew she was injured, and as it turns out, it took many, many months before she was able to regain some use of her arms. Well, that was um, just the beginning of many indignities that Karen would receive at the hands of police, guards, and the court system. And some of it was even more horrible than what I've uh, shared with you uh, right now, especially in jail. We're going to be talking about Ananias uh, he was a a man who used thugs just like this uh, on Jews that uh, he didn't like, and uh, we're going to be seeing acts as a very relevant book well anyway, Karen's case is just a one of hundreds of cases that I have seen in the good old u s a in which peaceful protesters have had concussions, broken bones, uh, broken facial bones, um, permanent damage uh, to their nerves, internal injuries, and in their in their in their bodies, because of overly aggressive police. In fact, uh, some of the police that I've watched on videos have actually uh, threatened to break people's uh, arms. In other words, they're planning to do damage uh, to these people. I watched a video of uh, police in L.A., Los Angeles, uh, arresting Operation Rescue pro-lifers, and on that uh, video, I could see arms being snapped. Uh, one of them, you could just hear it clearly in the movie, and the nonchucks was on the arm, and just boom, you can see the the arm uh, snapping uh, sideways. Another man was in a crawling position, and he was commanded by a police officer to put his hands up, and when he was on his knees with his hands up, the police officer came and just kicked him. It looked like he was being kicked either in the throat or in the face and sent him sprawling backwards. Now, you'd expect that kind of behavior in other countries but uh, these are police officers who are punishing protesters here. They weren't just picking them up and taking them away. They are making sure they are taking their time uh, to punish uh, some of these people. Uh, if you want to watch a movie that will spoil your whole week and just make you sick, you just watch one of those vood- uh, videos. Incredible abuses have been perpetrated in Atlanta, Los Angeles, West Hartford, and other places. And we've seen in the Book of Acts that... It is very relevant to what is going on in the 21st century, unless, of course, you just stay at home and you don't get involved uh, in our our culture wars. Last week, we looked at the injustice of mobs, the injustice of civic officers. Today, we're going to be face-to-face with the depravity of the courts. And anybody who has uh, had much experience at all in the pro-life movement knows that the courts have acted in very depraved manners at times. Not all of them, but uh, many of them have. And the first thing I want you to notice is verse 1, the spirit-filled testimony that Paul gives to this court. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, in his pre-Christian days, he had spent a lot of years on the Sanhedrin. He knew the system. He knew how everything worked. And so he knew he could dive straight in here and enter his plea Of not guilty. There's nothing wrong with what he is doing. Uh, Two things I want you to notice. First of all, he is saying that he's not guilty of any charges that this court has brought against him. Before God, his conscience is completely clear from the kind of charges he has heard uh, from these men. this means that Paul is throwing the burden of proof upon the court to demonstrate his guilt. Uh, In Jewish law, you didn't have to prove that you were innocent. It was up to the court to demonstrate that you were uh, indeed guilty. Well, apparently, uh, Ananias doesn't like that. And there are uh, some agencies in the federal government today who assume that you are guilty until you can prove you're innocent. And they get frustrated. Well, you don't immediately comply with their assessment of guilt. We're going to be seeing that Paul does not play that game. First of all, he pleads not guilty. Second, notice Paul's spirit-given boldness. Uh, This court of 70 men, there are 70 of the most powerful men in this nation, was an incredibly intimidating place to be. Uh, There are people who, just going into that assembly, they kind of crumble into compliance with whatever they want to do because it's a very intimidating uh, place to be. But Paul looks them in the eye and he does not flinch. How can he go before this uh, august body and not have any intimidation? Well, I believe it was because of the Spirit of God was upon him. Martin Luther testified that when he had to stand before a similar body of men, it was almost more than he could do. He's a bold guy, but he felt like he was going to cave in and recant his Protestantism But he prayed all night, he wrestled all night, and he said he felt like the Spirit of God was upon him and enabled him to give a bold and faithful testimony before those men. And I've seen God give similar boldness to people who have been arraigned before modern courts. I read the transcript of one court case where a pro-lifer was being uh, arraigned, I just was amazed with the power and the passion and the clarity and the conviction that you could see on this guy as he's bringing the Scriptures and telling these these uh, 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 civil magistrates that they have a responsibility before God to defend uh, the, the, the innocent and uh, bringing the Scriptures to bear. And he said afterwards, well, I don't know what came over me because I'm not usually like this, but he said, I felt such a peace that God gave to me and uh, such a a sense of um, of conviction and even compassion that it was just easy to speak uh, into into that situation, and it was uh, it was almost as if there was an unction of the spirit upon him to speak just the right words. It moved a lot of people there to tears, and it moved me to tears. I was trying to find where in the world this was. The last two days, I still haven't found that testimony because I wanted to read you some of it. It was a wonderful testimony. Well, we saw in Acts chapter 2 that God can give any Christian the same kind of boldness no matter what the intimidating situation might be because we, uh, in the end of Luke, uh, we're left by looking at fearful disciples who were in hiding. In the beginning of Acts, uh, Christ commissions them and he says, you're going to be anointed with power from on high and you're going to go out with that power. And that's exactly what happens. After Pentecost, they have incredible boldness. Even before the same Sanhedrin, they have in boldness. They're not intimidated the least, and it astonishes the Sanhedrin. Then in Acts chapter 4, they're filled with the Spirit again, and it says they speak the Word of God with boldness. What I want to tell you this morning is that boldness is not something that's just for the apostles. You know, it is something that is the heritage of every single Christian. It is a fruit that flows from God's spirit. He enables us to have uh, that kind of a courage. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime, and you'll see testimonies of little girls who are going to be sent to the lions, or perhaps being tortured. And the faithfulness and the boldness that the Spirit of God gives to them is very, very inspiring testimonies. So what I want to be showing today and next week, is that everything that Paul says in the first 10 verses is spirit-inspired. It is not the political manipulations of some guy who's trying to operate in the flesh. That's the way some people interpret these uh, verses. In fact, last week I made the comment that uh, I had thought that Paul made a, a slight mistake in this thing, and he repents of it. Actually, I made the mistake, because as I studied this, I realized that is absolutely not the case. In the next chapter, he says... He did not say anything wrong at this council. He affirms that. uh, Jesus appears to him in verse 11 and uh, affirms basically what Paul had said uh, was okay. And I realized when I looked at the Greek that Paul was not apologizing in verse 5. Not apologizing at all. In fact, he is testifying against a a corrupt court system. Well, let's look at the corrupt Ananias. Verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, this was such a gross violation of Jewish law that Paul instantly reacts and rebukes Ananias. Deuteronomy 25 did not allow any kind of behavior like this in court. It didn't allow torture, but it didn't allow this kind of slapping either. I sent out an email with a whole bunch of scriptures, and if you didn't get that, I put it into a footnote of last week's sermon that you can download uh, from the web, but there's plenty of information that what he did was unlawful. To slap Paul in response to his simple assertion of innocence was to assume his guilt without a trial. And that was nothing new for Ananias. All Israel knew him as a despicable tyrant, and I want to give you a little bit of background on this man because it will help you to understand what's going on in verse 5 when we get to that. He ruled as high priest from 48 to 59 A.D., But you need to realize that the office of high priest was no longer being filled by biblically qualified men. In fact, Rome appointed all of the high priests. Uh, He uh, not only appointed them, but now instead of just serving as high priest, they had a political office that was attached uh, to what they uh, had to do. Uh, Ananias controlled the temple. His position was secular, and the conservative Jews absolutely despised him. Definitely the Pharisaic uh, group that's in this, this is one of the reasons why there's a division. uh, They hated Ananias. They despised him. They thought he was a despicable man, and he was. He was ruthless. He would assassinate political uh, uh, opponents. Uh, He would um, uh, use bribery, and, of course, he stole the money from... Uh, the priests, and uh, from the tithes that were coming into uh, into the temple. Uh, just as one example, you read in Josephus, he did everything he could to get rid of Josephus, the historian in the first century. And there were other uh, uh, political adversaries that uh, uh, he worked against. He almost lost his job because a political official Uh, got a complaint to Rome saying, this guy's causing havoc, he's just slaughtered a whole bunch of Samaritans. But he had people in high places and so he was able to get off the hook uh, for that and it just seemed almost impossible to get rid of this man. When Paul did not meekly submit to this kangaroo court, he was incensed. And this command to slap him on the mouth is totally consistent with everything that we know about Ananias. As far as Ananias was concerned, his word was law and the people better follow it. He had determined Paul guilty. That was the end of the matter. He was not, had no intention of proving Paul's guilt. Uh, this is the way he worked. Now, unfortunately, this is the modus operandi of at least a few of the unelected, unaccountable federal agencies like OSHA and the EPA. You know, some businessmen have really suffered with the arbitrary decrees that have been handed down by uh, these organizations. It can cost you thousands, if not millions, uh, of dollars, and you're guilty until proven innocent. And it's really tough to prove you're innocent, and so a lot of businesses have just said, this is part of the cost of doing business, We're just going to pay it like a bribe, and uh, hopefully get the, the government off uh, their backs. You uh, have a hard time fighting it. Our city has been handed down an unfunded mandate on the whole sewer separation project. And yeah, sewers need to be upgraded, but the kinds of things that they are requ- requiring uh, and the time span in which they are requiring, is going to cost billions of dollars. And it's really, uh, except for way exceptional times, it's not going to make the sewers any more clean. Well, I talked to two politicians. What are the chances of us suing them? In, in, in government and at least getting a stay or making it more reasonable demands on the sewer separation. And they said other cities have tried it, and it's almost a hopeless cause to kind of fight this. Now, all it's going to do is it's going to add more to the tax burden uh, to fight it. So watch your taxes going up. You're probably right on this. Well, this was the state of affairs in Paul's day. They didn't have OSHA, EPA, OSHRC, FEMA, ATF, ATSDR, DOL, USDA, EEOC, CPSC, NRCS, and dozens and dozens of other alphabet uh, soup uh, agencies. But, you know, when you read Josephus, you realize nothing is new under the sun. The businessmen back then were suffering just as much as people are suffering under these unelected, unaccountable agencies today. Now, in any case, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a feel for what was going on with Ananias so you can understand Paul's response. In verse 3, Paul lets loose with what I consider to be a prophetic rebuke. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you command me to be struck contrary to the law. And God did indeed strike Ananias down within just a few short years. Jews who couldn't stand Ananias anymore uh, found him alone one time. They chased him down, cornered him in an aqueduct and brutally murdered him just like he had brutally murdered many other people. And so I, along with a number of commentators, believe this was a prophetic rebuke inspired that Paul was giving against Ananias. By the way, we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus had said, don't even think about what you're going to say when you're arraigned before courts and before kings. I will give you the words to say, well, that's exactly what's happening here. And yet there's a lot of people think, ah, that just can't be right. The spirit's always nice. And these aren't very nice words that Paul is saying. Uh, well, they don't say that exactly like that, but that's the, the hint you get behind the scenes. They say Paul must be operating in the flesh here, and the only... Proof that they can give that Paul is operating in the flesh is that he apologizes in verse 5. Now, as I said, last week I thought Paul was apologizing as well, but I've been convinced that is not the case, and I'll deal with those arguments when we get to verse 5. But let me just make four observations about verse 3. First, Ananias was worthy of being struck by God for violating his pledge to uphold the law. He was worthy of it. Right out of the chute, as soon as he was appointed to office, he started violating his oath of office. And I think the church needs to come into agreement with Paul's words here that the Ananiases of our day are worthy of judgment when they violate their constitution and they violate their oath of office. Every congressman and senator and and president has to take an oath of office with a so help me God that he's going to defend and uphold the Constitution, defend it against all enemies. And yet, right out of the chute, a lot of those people are immediately violating the Constitution left and right. By the way, it's not just public officials. There's a lot of, uh, of pastors who are supposed to take an oath that they are in agreement with the Westminster Confession of Faith, but they're saying it with cross fingers they know they don't agree with it. They're lying. And so this really is an issue that uh, needs to be dealt with. Now, the second thing I want you to notice balances the first point out. I want you to notice that Paul does not do the striking. Okay, He's not calling the church to do the striking. He's not calling people to arms. This is not a revolution that he's calling for. This is seeking God's judgment upon a particularly bad public official. And even though we're not inspired prophets, I hope none of you think you were inspired prophets like Paul was, God has given us a whole bunch of imprecatory psalms to ask for God's judgment. Psalms like Psalm 58. In fact, why don't you turn with me to Psalm 58. If you've got a Bible, we'll just go ahead and read it together. Psalm 58. This is a psalm that's talking against silent magistrates who are unwilling to judge righteously. Let's just read these 11 verses together. "...Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies." Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees a vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. He's talking there that civil magistrates ought to rejoice when capital punishment is inflicted upon he and his murderers. Okay? This is God's judgment. But anyway, this is is an imprecatory psalm, and the thing I like about them is that it keeps us from making mistakes. See, when we pray these imprecatory psalms, we are simply coming into agreement with Christ's prayers. He promises when the church is willing to pray these, He prays these Himself in the midst of the brethren. So all we're doing when we pray these is we're saying amen to the prayers of Christ. And the Father can answer those prayers any way that He wants. The Father can answer them by converting the people, in which case Christ bears the curse, or by taking them out. But in any case, we leave it in the Father's judgment. This is Jesus' prayers uh, against His enemies. Third thing to notice is that Ananias is compared to a whitewashed wall. Commentators point out this is a very well-known Jewish metaphor taken from Ezekiel 13 and verses 10 through 16. And what Ezekiel is describing is, there's a tottering wall that the cement between all of the stones is crumbling away. It's gotten rotten and it's ready to fall over. But instead of repairing it, what people do is they put all of this whitewash on the wall and make it look nice, make it look really new, but it's not going to stand up to the waters uh, or the judgment of the Lord. And that is the way it is with the modern power of Babel in America. Kathy had devotions in Habakkuk 2 the other day and she was sharing... Uh, a verse that was really uh, encouraging to her. There's a verse there that says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But the verse right before that tells us about the evil that has to be taken away before that can happen. And it says, Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? And so it's a, a picture of nations who are working really hard to accomplish their humanistic agendas only to see it all falling apart. And it's saying that they're feeding the fires of their own destruction. Well, that's exactly what's happening in Washington, D.C., the insanity that's coming out of there. They're feeding the fires of their own destruction. And it's going to collapse. Just as Ananias was a tottering wall, whitewashed wall that was ready to collapse, so too are all who stand in opposition to God. Fourth thing to notice is what the whitewash is covering up. Ananias is pretending to be an enforcer of the law when in reality he is a breaker of the law and an abuser of the law. Okay, How many times must Washington, D.C. violate the laws of our nation before people wake up and realize they're not defenders of the law. That's just an illusion. It is whitewash to cover up constitutional treason. It's no wonder that Paul gets angry over Ananias' words. This is There really is a place for anger. Some people say, oh, okay, Paul has to apologize here. He just should not get angry. John the Baptist got angry over all of the sins of Herod. Jesus got angry with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests. There is a place uh, for anger over treason. But point four asserts that it's not just Ananias who is at fault here. We could focus on Ananias, who really was a wicked, uh, very visibly evil man. Uh, Everybody there knew that he was a greedy, self-serving, pork-barrel-thieving government official. They knew it. Okay? But I blame the people in verse four just as much. Verse four, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? They are shocked at the degree of outrage that Paul was showing. They're just shocked. They're used to being patient with evil. Now, I want you to notice that there is not one word of criticism for the clear-cut violation of God's law that Ananias engages in. They're just shocked that what right do you have to criticize Ananias? You can't be criticizing the government. They're certainly not going to criticize the government because they don't want to be on Ananias' blacklist themselves. But there's a further group of people that I blame who are implied in these verses. It's the majority of men in that room who simply kept quiet. Now, let me tell you something. Most of the people, I shouldn't say most, a good number of the people in that room were Pharisees who hated, uh, despised Ananias, thought ill of him every bit as much as the Apostle Paul did, but they kept quiet. That's the problem. They kept quiet about it. It takes a further word from Paul in verse 6 to prove that they personally are under attack by Ananias before they begin to be outraged. And that's the way it is today. Treason after treason has been engaged in by government officials over my lifetime. And yeah, people are upset about it. They don't like that. And by the way, I use the word treason advisedly because if you read... Uh, the, the founding fathers, they would describe the things that are going on today as treason. They would describe it, no doubt about it. So anyway, we know that there's a lot of people that don't like it, but they're silent about it. It may take a few more outrageous acts from the Obama administration that they feel personal loss over before they get outraged, and all hell breaks loose like it did in verse 10, Uh, we don't know what the last straw is going to be before government officials finally get mad enough to do something about it. There are 10 states right now that have, uh, many of them have already passed the bills and others are contemplating them, but where they're saying, look, enough is enough. We are sick and tired of the unfunded mandates that are coming from the federal government. These are unconstitutional. We're not going to put up with it anymore. Now, we'll see if anything comes out of that. But here's the point that, that I give. It's not enough to get mad only in verse 10 when the politicians feel the heat and they get personally offended. Okay, they should have gotten mad in verse 3 over the principle of the matter, even though it maybe doesn't personally affect them. The verse 3 time to get mad was many, many decades ago. Okay, it's not now. It was many, many decades ago. Think of the many years of silence that has allowed the Ananiases of our culture to get into power and to do the things that they are doing. Many silences are guilty silences. And so there's really three evils in this passage. There's the evil of Ananias, who is very aggressively perpetrating evil. Then there's the evil of those who just don't want any criticism and just let them get away with it. And then there's the evil of those who simply are quiet because they don't want to ruffle feathers all three are forms of evil. They're all guilty. Let's move on to point five. Look at Paul's incisive rejection of Ananias' authority. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. As I mentioned last week, I thought this was an apology. And then I read J.A. Alexander's three pages of numerous proofs that this cannot possibly, even remotely, be an apology. And he convinced me. Uh, First of all, the Greek has a very unusual construction in it that's hard to translate into the Greek without adding a few words. Uh, Here's uh, how J.A. Alexander and another commentary translate it. I did not know, and I do not now know, that he is the high priest. There's a past tense, there's a present tense in there. So he's saying, I did not know and I still do not know that he is the high priest. You you get that? He's saying, hey, I didn't recognize him as a high priest. When I made that statement, I still don't recognize him as a high priest. He is an imposter. Okay? That's basically what Paul is saying here. Then people say, well, that didn't make sense. If that's what is being, going on here, then why does he quote Exodus 22, verse 8? What's the point of that? Well, it's really quite simple. The, the answer is that Paul is explaining he has in no way violated Exodus 22, 8, which the other guy has just finished basically quoting, you know, uh, or, or, or alluding to. He has not violated that. See, here's the issue. Ananias is claiming to be the high priest, and the high priest was not supposed to be a ruler of the people. He said, I've not violated that law. He's not even supposed to be a ruler of the people. The king was the ruler of the people, not the high priest. High priest has no business ruling. He had no business doing what Ananias and other people before him had done. Only Jesus Christ has all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, there was a complete separation of powers and godly men... Reacted very strongly, exactly like Paul did when people transgressed those separation of powers, for example, the two times where kings tried to be priests in the temple, the men in the temple, at risk to their own lives, shoved those kings out of the temple, told them to get out of here, and they were struck by leprosy uh, by the lord that's how seriously God took the separation of powers, and um, likewise, the priests uh, were the high priest was not supposed to uh, rule as a as a king. Second Chronicles 19.11 says, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all the matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Israel. So you've got the priest and you've got the ruler. You've got one over the church, you got one over the state. They're two totally different offices. Joshua 17.4, 22.30, 22.32, the chief priest is contrasted with the ruler of the people. So what Paul is rejecting is the idea that a legitimate high priest can be removed from office by Rome and Rome can just take anybody that they want to take and put him into the place of the high priest. He's saying that's just not legitimate. Now let's try to use a modern analogy. It would be like the the civil government coming along and... um, not liking the fact that I'm preaching what I'm preaching here today and taking me out of the pulpit and putting a pro-abortion, pro-homosexual person who doesn't believe in the Scriptures, putting them in the pulpit here and demanding that you guys respect the preaching of this new pastor that is in the pulpit. Would you do that? I don't think so. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, If you see it from that analogy, you can see what Paul is saying here. It would be unbiblical. It would be unconstitutional. Paul spoke respectfully to kings and to those who were legitimately in authority, but he was not going to speak respectfully to this foul man. And so, let me read it again with emphasis and see if you catch the drift. Brethren, I did not know, or you could translate it, recognize him, and I do not now recognize him to be a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, this high priest and no high priest was a ruler of the people. Now, To those who object to this and they say, boy, it sure looks like an apology to me, you run into a problem. There is an insuperable problem that every commentator has said. If you accept this as an apology, we don't even know how in the world to answer the issues that are here. Uh, Two commentaries say we may never know how to answer uh, the the issue. It seems like just a blatant contradiction. Let me explain uh, the troubles that they, they come up with on this. The apology interpretation has to take Paul's statement, I did not know, to mean I lacked information instead of, no, I don't receive, I don't recognize him, I don't know him as a high priest. Uh, They say it's a lack of information about the fact that there is a high priest who is talking to him. Now, here's the problem. Paul served on the Sanhedrin. They followed a protocol of, where the uh, the high priest was always the moderator, he, they knew where he would stand, he's the one who guides the, the direction, he's the only one who would really be authorized to be uh, speaking at uh, this time, otherwise they would be uh, speaking out of order, and so people are saying, how could Paul not know that he's the high priest? Secondly, you can't just say, well, I didn't know he was Ananias, uh, you know, I knew he was the high priest, but I didn't know he was Ananias, because... Uh, Twice Paul has been to Jerusalem since Ananias was put into office and there has been so much talk about the abuses of Ananias has been perpetrated, Uh, even the apology advocates say it really is ludicrous to think Paul did not know that Ananias was the high priest. So how in the world do we understand this? Well, some have tried to explain it, that Paul has really bad eyesight and he can't see further than three feet in front of him. And uh, that's a real hard one to buy. It's a real lame excuse because Paul elsewhere in the book of Acts seems to be able to see quite fine. Uh, you know, at least in the big picture, uh, he recognizes other people. He, uh, he talks with them. So that one, I don't think, really flies. Then there's others who say, well, maybe there were people who were blocking Paul's view and he can't see around these people to see who is, who is speaking. And that seems so lame too because he knows the protocol. He's been on the Sanhedrin for many years. He knows who's going to be talking. It's going to be a high priest. How could he say? I don't know. And so some of the apology advocates say, well, the only conclusions we can come to is Paul is lying. He's scared and so he tells a little white lie. Uh, You know, I really didn't know that was the high priest. Sorry, guys. Uh, That does not fly because when he has time to think about it in chapter 24, let me get the exact verses there, Um, chapter uh, 24, 19 through 21, Paul denies that he has said anything wrong at this court session right here. He says, unless somebody wants to object to the fact, which nobody could object to this, unless somebody wants to object to the fact that he says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So he's clearly saying there, I said nothing wrong in verse 3. Now you can study the debate for yourself in J.A. Alexander's uh, commentary But I'm convinced that the apology interpretation simply will not work. Instead, here's what's happening. Paul is defending his previous statement. Secondly, he is refusing to recognize the legitimacy of Ananias being a high priest over the people. Thirdly, uh, he is insisting he never violated Exodus 22.8 since he had spoken that against... uh, I mean, that was speaking about the ruler uh, of, of the people. And it's not a technicality. It's at the heart of Exodus 22. So let's apply this. There does come a time when people must refuse to recognize the legitimacy of certain offices. Ananias was a church man, so let's apply it to church politics. Okay? We don't have high priests today, but I think we can use an analogy. Let's just pretend that we were in a denomination that has uh, really gone liberal, that the moderator of the denomination has authorized the killing of babies, just like Ananias has authorized the killing of adults. Now, we, we have, know about denominations that do that, right? That they've authorized the killing of babies. Uh, furthermore, this moderator has pushed other ungodly agendas onto the denomination. He has thugs who intimidate opponents, he's rejected the authority of the Scripture just like Ananias did. Furthermore, he's a liberal, okay? He doesn't believe in the, um, the inspiration of Scripture, he doesn't believe in miracles, doesn't believe in angels, doesn't believe in the resurrection. He's just a rank liberal just like the Sadducees were, and Ananias was a Sadducee. Sounds almost like the PCUSA. In fact, it sounds exactly like the PCUSA, other than that the moderator of the PCUSA is not pretending to be a civil magistrate. That would be about the only difference uh, between the two. Now, would it be credible to say that just because this guy claims to be a Christian is a moderator of a denomination that used to be respectable at some time, that you need to respect him and you need to stay in that denomination? No. Paul called people to leave that denomination. When Judaism became apostate, he left it. Let me give you just what he gave a, a few months before to the Corinthians. He called the believing Jews, he said, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Within four years of this event, the book of Revelation was written, and here's what John told the believing Jews of that time. He said, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Paul was no longer recognizing the authority of this apostate church leader. And I would say that denominations like the PCUS, A, the Methodist Church, and other liberal denominations that have denied the gospel of Jesus Christ at the highest levels of government. And I can give you many examples where they've, they've uh, approved against all complaints. They've approved men who have denied the gospel, the deity of Christ, the Trinity. And they have financed murderous Marxist guerrillas in Africa and they have not only promoted, they have celebrated abortion and homosexuality, and they have actually financed conferences, the Methodists and the PCUSA have, they have financed conferences where lesbians have had goddess worship. I am sorry, I will not acknowledge these to be a true church of Jesus Christ. They are apostate. They are not a true church, and we're following Paul uh, in doing this. To stay in such a denomination is to reject the kingship of the heavenly king, the heavenly prophet, and the heavenly high priest. They are apostate, and they, we should no more apologize for this and acknowledge their legitimacy than Paul apologized to Ananias and accepted his legitimacy. Now, this is why Paul immediately jumps to the heart of his defense in verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. It really was an issue of liberalism. The Sadducees were liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay, Now, on this point, Paul was still a Pharisee on his interpretation now some people think paul's just being coy he's being sly here now there's no question about it he was using a tactic to divide those two against each other to get himself off the hook but he was not lying if you read all of the defenses that paul gives the resurrection is at the heart of his defense it was at the heart of his faith and lord willing next week we're going to be seeing why the resurrection is such a critical doctrine to defend why it is at the very central core of our Christianity. But for today, I want to remind you of something that Paul said just a few months before to the Corinthians. He said that if the resurrection is true, then our labors in the Lord are not in vain. Here's what he said. He ends his great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, great chapter on the resurrection with these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul could say that even though Corinth was full of problems because he knew his labor in the Lord is not in vain. He could say that even though he had recently been beaten by government officials, even though he had been shafted in the court system, even though uh, he had been recently stoned by a mob, he knew the Lord was with him. The resurrected Lord was with him. He uh, was very, very encouraged by this. He could say this even though things were getting as dark for Paul as they appear to be for us an abomination. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus gave him boldness and comfort and hope and faith and zeal. Okay, we're going to be seeing next week that the resurrection of Jesus makes it worthwhile to oppose a tyranny in our land. Why? Because He didn't get resurrected to get defeated. He got resurrected to win the victory. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. He's building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have hope. Our labors in the Lord are not in vain. We can also uh, say that if Jesus is raised from the dead then we've got to reject the philosophical position of anarchism. Why? Because Jesus was resurrected to be king of kings and lord of lords, and anarchists don't believe that there should be any kings or any government. Who is he to be the king of kings over, right? So we have to reject that. We have to reject revolution. Why? Because our resurrected lord has said he's not going to advance his kingdom through the power of a physical sword. He's going to advance his kingdom through the power of this sword. He wants a spiritual power in himself to receive the glory. And so we have to reject Uh, revolution. Um, We uh, can also say that the resurrection can give us boldness to face down any intimidation that we might receive. Why? Because the resurrected Lord of this universe is behind us and in us and working through us. Amen? Okay. Um, We can also say that if He is resurrected it will help us not to humanistically use our own methods and take things into our own own hands because Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for the taking down of strongholds. Why? It's He, it's Him that we're looking to. That's where our focus should be. So even though this passage describes the tyranny of the court system rather well, describes the liberalism, the horrible state of the churches rather well, it makes our focus be on King Jesus. His resurrection gives us hope. So, that's my exhortation to you this morning. Do not lose hope no matter how many Ananiases may arise in our land. Instead, take heed to the words of Paul. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Father, thank You for the encouragement of Your Word. In the midst of discouraging times, thank you for including in your scripture examples of uh, things that happen uh, to uh, Christians today. May we take heart. May we find boldness and faith as uh, we receive uh, the empowering that comes from your Spirit. May we not flee uh, from uh, adversity, but Father, may we also not uh, uh, just ask for it, Uh, may we heed the words of Peter that when we are persecuted it's because we are doing good, not because we're doing evil. Father, may you be honored and glorified as uh, we go forth from this place uh, seeking to be courageous and to take a stand in our culture. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.